What's up? It's Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. Thanks for listening to the Under the Hood podcast presented by Coors Light. Stay inside and buy your Coors Light online. Find out how at get.coorslight.com. Coors Light, take time to chill. It's Under the Hood. Follow us on the gram at IGJHood and at ESPN underscore Chicago. This is Chicago's home for sports. ESPN 1000. Under the Hood airs weeknights at 7 here on ESPN 1000, the ESPN Chicago app. So glad that you are with me. Full show tomorrow as well between 7 and 10 right here on Chicago's Home for Sports. We'll have Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday for you at 9.30. If you're a wrestling fan, we get that for you and so much more. Full show tomorrow, 7 to 10 on ESPN 1000. Jeff Dickerson and I host Dickerson Hood right here on ESPN 1000. And also the show is heard nationally all over the country on ESPNRadio.com and Sirius XM Channel 80. So we're on every Saturday afternoon. We're on uh, this past Saturday, and we had a number of terrific guests, including Dante Stallworth. Now, Dante Stallworth is a former NFL wide receiver uh, who is also an activist, uh, and he's been all over the place talking about the death of uh, George Floyd and also the NFL as far as how NFL players feel about George Floyd's death. Of course, it relates to the Roger Goodell story of Roger Goodell having a statement on racism and police brutality. And so we talked to Dante Stallworth about a number of things on Dickerson and Hood, uh, including what has uh, this last week been for him? It's been interesting. It's been uh there are a lot of emotions. Um, I live in Washington D.C., so I'd been at, I'd been at the protest. Uh, they, they've been protesting every day uh, since last week, and it's it's been people have been angry, people have been upset, frustrated. They feel disenfranchised, uh, and it's been, it's been going on for so long that this was just going to eventually bubble over at some point. And I think the conditions of being in a global pandemic with the coronavirus, I think that that kind of exacerbated things as well. And also, you know, in the same token, one thing that we haven't discussed as a society a whole lot is uh, in the last uh, 10 or 11 weeks, you know, more than 40 million Americans have have uh, filed for unemployment and every week for, for, uh, for 10 straight weeks, 11 straight weeks, 4 million people have, have been uh, filing for unemployment. And the last time that anything near that happened in the country was the great depression. So we haven't seen, even with the great depression, we have not seen one week where more than a million, million, more than 1 million Americans have lost their jobs. And we've seen that for 11 straight weeks consecutively, 4 million plus. And so these are, these are some very volatile times. On top of that, you're dealing with not just a global pandemic, but the pandemic of police brutality, which is, I, I always say when I do interviews, it's not a political issue at all. This is a human rights issue. And people all around the world, from Berlin to Tokyo, London, uh, Syria, New Zealand, Ireland, Poland, Australia. I mean, this, the list goes on and on. You see tens of thousands of people mar- marching in solidarity all around the world, uh, marching for George Floyd, marching for Breonna Taylor, marching for Black Lives Matter. So this is, this is something that has exploded and the conditions that brought us here 
uh, have have also bubbled over to the top. Dante, how different is this movement against police brutality? How different is this versus other cases of police brutality? Well, I, I think uh, I think it's different because uh, of all the things that I just mentioned about about the about us dealing with the global pandemic, which is not by not by far over with yet. We're still in the first wave, and there's there's you know bound to be a second wave. We would hope not, but. Uh, science speaks otherwise to these pandemics, uh, to the coronavirus. So we're still dealing with the we're still dealing with the with the pandemic. Like I said, the, the economic um, disparities between the rich and the poor in this country have just exploded since the late seventies, and uh, and obviously racial racial um, racial injustice is still prevalent in this country and police brutality. So I think again, I think all these things have have culminated into the protests. Uh, that you've seen from, uh, you know, from San Francisco to New York City. And people are rebelling. People are rebelling in the streets. They're rebelling, honestly, against the uh, aggressive nature of the law enforcement that's been uh, deployed on the streets. And we've seen images all, again, all across the country of police escalating violence. And we can't, we, we cannot take that lightly that the people who are meant to serve and pertain listen i know they have a difficult job i think everybody knows they have a difficult job but there needs to be a systemic change in the way we are policed they become too militarized and i think anybody whether whether you're uh support the police or not can agree with the fact that the police uh in this country have become have become way too far uh militarized so then when all those weapons of war come home and we are the recipients of, of this brutality. We are the recipients of this uh, brutal violence that, that was been happening. I've, I've been there. I was there Monday when the president gave his speech at the Rose garden and uh, the park police were there on their horses and they started violently uh, attacking protesters to move us out of that area. And it was something that I, that I never thought I would see in this country. I mean, I wasn't around, during the civil rights era, that was not a peaceful time. That was a very violent time as well. And people have been rebelling against that. And so I think that's why you've seen uh, a lot of the uh, instances of what's been happening, you know, all, in, in every, every single state there have been protests. And, uh, and, and now people are starting to uh, demand sweeping reforms, sweeping changes to the criminal justice system, sweeping changes uh, to these old systems that have not been working for the average American, that have only been working for the the very few percent at the top at the, at the very top of of this country, and 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 that to me is something that people are bringing into this movement. And you know, history will history will have the last word of what this moment actually means. But as of right now, I mean, you see people again all across the country, all across the world that are marching and protesting in solidarity, and we haven't seen anything like that maybe since the Iraq war. Former NFL wide receiver Dante Stallworth is our guest on Dickerson and Hood. I know, Dante, you missed Drew Brees by a year in New Orleans, but, you know, he was in the league for a long time when you were in the league. And, you know, when his first statement came out about kneeling during the anthem, I know Michael Thomas tweeted out right away, you know, he doesn't know any better. I don't know. I kind of feel yeah. like he should know a lot better. You know, I, look, the guy has been an NFL quarterback for such a long time. 
the overwhelming majority of his coworkers are black people. Um, was he just not paying attention a couple of years ago when this all happened? Did he not want to know what was happening? I'm just curious. I know he has since changed his tune, which I think finally he got on the right message at the end. But, you know, when you first saw what he had to say, what was your reaction? Well, I actually know Drew. I, I did overlap with him a little bit. Uh, I was traded a week or two from New Orleans before the season started. So I had the whole off season to to get to know Drew a little bit. And we actually both had our surgeries in, uh, in Birmingham with Dr. Andrew. So uh, we both had shoulder surgeries at the end of the 2005 season. Obviously, his more horrific than mine. But uh, I, I know Drew. I like Drew. Uh, and I think mostly everyone uh, that comes into contact with him does. However, he totally missed the mark on this one. And I think when we're discussing these issues, you know, and, and, I, and, I, and I'll keep saying it, the fact that when people look at police brutality issue or uh, the kneeling, um, the kneeling and, and, and silent protest, when people look at these issues as political issues, and why they were protesting, then then you can't move. It's it's harder to remove yourself from your side, your ideology, whether you agree with the protest or not. But there is a duty for all of us as American citizens to educate ourselves, to understand the history and understand that these uh, these inequities towards the black community is something that has that has been. Uh, geared to do just that. The criminal justice system and a lot of the legislation that has been passed was geared to throw black people in jail for a long time. So when people say the system is broke, it's not broke. It's actually working the way it was intended to work. But we have to reform that system or even get rid of that entire system and and figure out a new way where we can actually live up to uh, liberty and justice for all. Until we do that, you will continue to see these protests, I'm sure, um, you will continue to see people angry and upset, and there needs to be some accountability because the police have been Im- immunized from accountability, even in the midst of this global pandemic. Dante, uh, when you're at the job or when you played in the locker room, there's always going to be conversations, maybe some conversations you're not privy to, some that you that might involve you. Um, and I was thinking about what Vic Fangio, Denver Broncos coach, said earlier this week about how he didn't see racism in the National Football League. Uh, and, not, and Jeff and I know that that's, that's not true uh, because there's so many examples of that in the NFL. I'll ask you, though, from your experience, what did you experience a racial divide while you played in the NFL? Is there any examples of that? Uh, so I, I think uh, for the for the most part, um, in in the locker rooms, everyone gets along. Doesn't matter what your religion is, what color your skin, uh, what your political ideology is. People, we are there to play football. We are there to to do a job. We all have uh, family to take care of, and. For the most part, guys are pretty much, uh, you know, even, even with the different uh, political ideologies, left and the right or whatever side of the spectrum you land on, uh, guys are there to do a job, uh, which is to win football games. And, and it, it's hard enough to go, you know, in the NFL and, and win football games, you know, on a weekend and week-out basis. That's hard enough in, it, in itself, you know, as opposed to, like, worrying about what uh, – worrying about – you know, like like any other divide, because we all get along so well, and it's you know it's the NFL is predominantly uh, African American, but 
uh, every everyone, you know, for the most part gets along. So I, I I never saw any anything like that at all my in my time, and I've been in the multiple uh, different locker rooms as well. I do want to ask you, Dante. Uh, do you think Roger Goodell's statement was sincere? I hope so. Um, I think a lot of people are still are still upset and uh, still don't trust the NFL because the, because of the fact that the NFL has not mentioned Colin Kaepernick's name at all um, in any of these statements. And you know, he was the one that kick kick started this whole thing off. So uh, I think it's a good first step. Like I said, I I. I I am happy to see them moving in this direction. Uh, the, you know they were forced by the players, and that's uh, you know that's something that that also can't be lost on us is that the players got together and wielded their power, uh, their star power, and immediately the NFL came out um, and uh, responded to the demands of the players. The players came out with demands, and uh, you know up until at least mentioning what. What uh, they wanted the NFL to mention that uh, Black Lives Matter with a number of other demands they made, and it happened right away. So um, that's a way that we can move together, move in unison. Because the again, the NFL is a predominantly, uh, well, I should say, NFL players uh, are is predominantly African American. So the players essentially run the league, and yet uh, they are just now starting to exercise their power. And, and what they can start, you know, pushing the NFL to do, get behind them with legislation, uh, support them in, in different ways, you know, more than more ways, more concrete ways than, than words. Words are good. Words are a good first step. But next we have to move to concrete actions, a plan, strategy, all that, because, you know, that's what we do in football. So let's take that same mentality and, and push forward uh, for whatever, whatever the NFL players are looking to get out of, get out of the NFL. When you talk to young people about what is going on in our world right now with police brutality, what what is usually your message to young people because they're they're young trying to figure out what is going on. So what what's the message uh, that you send, and what do you uh, what do you receive from young people? I, I've seen you know most of these protests, at least in Washington D.C., uh, from what I've gathered, have been mostly uh, younger folks. And that's usually the way it goes, right? Like you look at uh, during the Vietnam War, that that atrocious war that we essentially lied our ways into, and you know millions of deaths. People were rebelling at home; they were upset, uh, and it's and it essentially was pushed forward by by college students. Uh, you remember the unfortunate events at Kent State. Uh, it's usually the young people who get who get the ball rolling. Uh, and then they get their parents to get on board, their aunts and uncles, uh, their their teachers and professors, and uh, they you know they they have been the ones that have that have been driving these protests, and it's it's, it's really good to see. So uh, you know, honestly, they they understand much more than I did at that age. Uh, they're much more in tune with uh, with global politics and uh, what's happening in the world today, and how how we uh, how we are fitting uh, currently living through. Uh, you know, it's been an interesting year, obviously, uh, you know, unprecedented global pandemic and uh, these protests again, you know, this is something that uh, that will be written in the history books about. And these kids want to want to uh, write their own chapter and in, in, in how we move forward in this country. Dante, thank you so much uh, for giving us some time, man. Really enjoyed uh, your visit with us. Uh, all the best to you and stay safe. OK, thank you. I appreciate you for having me on. 
Rod Gilmore about that coming up at 9.30 right here on ESPN 1000. Also, his thoughts on uh, the murder of George Floyd because, uh, you know, Rod's seen some things. And, and so he can definitely give a perspective of someone who's been around for a while seeing the world. And so we'll hear from Rod coming up uh, in our next segment right here on ESPN 1000. Boy, baseball has screwed themselves, haven't they? Hasn't baseball really screwed themselves? It, it is just amazing every day that we go through this spring into the summer and there's no agreement on either side for baseball. It's what Nick Friedel mentioned to us in our last hour, in our 8 o'clock hour, when he said, you know, you're going to get it to a point where these other sports, whether it's NASCAR, whether it's the UFC, whether it's the WWE, all, you know, all elite wrestling, whether it's anything else, will somehow be able to get past Major League Baseball. They will have more people watching their sport than baseball because baseball, every day that they're away, screwing themselves. Every day. You know, if, if the NBA was, if we didn't have this pandemic, the NBA is going on right now, the NBA would be in the finals right now in June. And there'll be eyeballs peeled to the NBA because if people are not into, into the regular season, they're definitely into the postseason for the NBA. But every single day that baseball's away, it just goes further and further away from people's minds. And it's just so disappointing. 48-game season, 76-game season. I mean, I, I see this proposal on ESPN.com, which you need to know about the Major League Baseball 76-game 2020 season. Whatever they come up with will not be like the baseball season that you and I know. It's not going to be the 162-game season that we know, the grind of the season, the ebb and flow, looking at the schedule, being able to pick out games that you want to go to. Eric and I looking at the businessman special on a, on a Thursday to see the White Sox for a 105 start or going on the weekends when we get an opportunity to go. It's not the same. And it, 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 it just is amazing that what, however it comes about, it won't feel the same because we won't go to Guaranteed Rate or Miller Park or Wrigley Field to see the games. No, we won't be able to go there. It'll be in Arizona. It'll be some other place. It'll be in Florida, someplace like that. It won't even feel the same. But even with the kind of baseball that they're trying to propose, that they're trying to put out there, both sides still can't come up with an agreement. Some thoughts from Jesse Rogers early on Waddle and Sylvie. The offer from Major League Baseball and Tony Clark and Rob Manfred should be... Um, they all should be fired after this. It's disheartening. It really is. I mean, it's just amazing. I mean, in, in a different world, both sides, at the end of this, you'd, you'd have people losing their jobs at the top. I mean, if we could do it, you'd have a new commissioner and you'd have a new uh, executive officer at the, at the union, right, at the top. Tony Clark and Rob Manfred. I mean, there's, there's enough blame to go around, but, you know, we'll see what the, what the uh, fallout is after the fact. 
you guys said it. They're not anywhere. They're not any closer than they were a week ago. This latest offer is uh, it's, it's like throwing them a bone. There's a few things there, um, but it's less money up front, a little bit more money if the playoffs are played. So okay, and the the no draft pick compensation. That's a little bit a little bit of a nod to, to this coming off season. That's a little carrot, but in general, it doesn't move the ball. I, I asked uh, somebody that in the know at the union, you know, does this even get us close to a first down? He said, not even close. And I'm just talking about a first down. A touchdown is an agreement, not even close to a first down. So, you know, they're just they're talking around the edges, guys. Now, again, that doesn't mean there won't be baseball. As we know, he can unilaterally decide this thing. But but uh, as I talked to someone else about it, if that happens, if he says you're playing 50, you know, too bad, no more talk, you're playing 50, cue the Benny Hill music is the response I got because I don't know how the players are going to react to that. Wow. I mean, that's strong commentary from Jesse talking about just trying to replace everybody because, you know, it's it's so disheartening. Baseball in itself has been behind the times. I've talked about that so many times in this show where they need to be able to be more modern. They need to be able to you know, create uh, the opportunity for to bring more people into the tent. Baseball is not just for baby boomers and Gen Xers. You need to be able to grow the sport. And when it's out of um, the view of the average fan, in which we have so many things to do now, as far as technology, you know, being with family, going out, all these things, baseball, trying to figure out a 48 or 76 game season is just ridiculous. Um, Jesse, uh, also on with um, JD and I talking about this. Um, the question was posed to Jesse, does a rushed season hurt or help the game? No, it hurts the sport. It hurts the sport because of injuries. And this is the under-talked-about under thing throughout this um, ordeal, especially in a short season. Guys simply aren't going to risk the future of their careers for a shortened season that will probably have an asterisk to the World Series title. Uh, 25% of their salary is not worth the risk. So the first time a star pulls a hamstring, first time a, a pitcher has a sore shoulder, we may not see that player again. We may not say it. First of all, oblique injuries can take the entirety of the regular season to heal. Hamstring injuries can take three to four weeks or more. Um, but, but certainly arm injuries for pitchers is going to be the thing to watch more than anything uh, because obviously a hamstring will eventually heal. But, you know, you could blow out your arm and be out two years. So the sprint of a season doesn't help. It really doesn't. Now, I'm a guy that doesn't mind a 100-game season every year, but that's 100 games. 40 to 50 is, is half of that, and it's just, it doesn't work in, in this situation because guys are not going – you're going to see all sorts of guys on the shelf, in my opinion, um, especially when you consider the, the disjointed uh, season and, and training regimen. You know, they start spring training, stop spring training. They'll go back to it with a shortened spring training. So I, I think guys are going to absolutely be safer th- rather than sorry when it comes to a short season. Eric, when I'm hearing Jesse, and I've known Jesse for over 25 years in my career, right? That is about as fired up as we've heard Jesse. And, and when I, people sometimes get confused with certain references we have on the show. When I say talk show Jesse, there's a difference between like reporter Jesse with the suit on or when he's on the sidelines for Cubs games and, you know, reporter Jesse. Reporter Jesse and, and talk show Jesse are two different guys. What you heard there earlier was talk show Jesse. I mean, he's talking about taking an ax to Tony Clark and, and Rob Manfred because of what those guys on both sides are doing to baseball. Right. Jesse seems fired up. He seems to be 
becoming more and more pessimistic about baseball happening, and I think it's pissing them off that these guys can't figure it out. So what are we going to do, Eric? What are you and I going to do? Like, what about that businessman special, that 105 game on a Thursday? And what about you on a, on a Saturday with your old school 83 White Sox jersey? Damn Have right. worn it? No, it's it's still hanging in the closet. I wait until opening day usually to pop it out, but it's just waiting. Like, no Dollar Dog Wednesdays. We're just just waiting and, and hoping for something. They're just killing the sport, man. I don't think it's – I'm really starting to believe baseball is not going to happen. You want you want me to go into the weeds a little bit for thirty seconds? Yes. Okay. So not even not whether you care about this or not, I'm going to mention because it is an extension of baseball. So not only are you killing the major league baseball sport across the board, where there's no games, whether the players are sequestered in one spot or not, but you're also kill, you're killing the minor leagues too, right? They they so, are eliminated them. Yeah. Not important apparently. And on top of that, is it this week? I believe it's this week. The draft's going to take place. It's not going to be the endless draft for baseball that we've seen in the past. Now they're limiting the draft. So, so you know, some of the greatest players that we've ever seen play were drafted late, 15th, 16th, 17th round. Yeah, it's never going to be the TV uh, component, the TV type of um, uh, uh spot that you would see for the National Football League or for the NBA when they do their draft. It won't be the same because it's basically baseball. When we when they had the MLB draft, when you sit down and see these names, you're like, I don't know who these people are. All right, because because college baseball, it's regional. Uh, you have to really search for it to look for it. But the point is, is that, Eric, they're going to start. They, they, they have cut down on the draft. So now the, the, the stars of tomorrow, they need a place to play. They can't play in the minor leagues. They can't be in the major leagues. So where are these people going to be? Where, where, where can they play? I mean, a lot of them are going to give up baseball. Like, don't you think those those like mid to later round guys who make make rosters and fight their way through? Because in baseball, more than any other sport, it's more about learning the game than it is your own physical tools. So at eighteen, it's harder to tell who's the guy, what the star is going to look like in baseball than it is in basketball. So these guys develop and learn, and they're they're not. They're just going to go become CPAs now. <laughs> or play soccer. Right. <laughs> <laughs> see, see this, is what, this is what happened. And this, this is the sport that we grew up enjoying and really in, loving. Major League Baseball, that trickles on to the minor leagues. If, the, if there's no real minor leagues, because they don't have a union, so they're not part of these negotiations at all, so they're not playing it also. So they got to go get real jobs because they're minor leaguers. And then you go to the college spot. There's, there are, are schools that are cutting baseball. Bowling Green is one of them. Uh, there's a couple other schools that are cutting baseball because they because they have to. Right. Penny, what happens this fall, I, I, we're going to see a lot more schools scrap it, I believe. And, like, here's another example is one of my friends who I grew up with, mm-hmm. like, bounced around the minor leagues for, like, four or five years. And now what he does for a career is he's a trainer. He teaches baseball because he loves it. He bounced around, made a career out of it. So now, like... He's ingratiating the game on young players. We're going to have less of those people because they never even got that chance to get into professional baseball and get that real coaching to pass on. There's your sport. There it is. The great sport of baseball. And, and some will say, and, and I, can't, I can't measure whether or not Manfred loves the game or not, but I've heard like Manfred does not love the game. Uh, it, like Bud Selig loved the game. I mean, that was his whole life. He loved baseball. Uh, whether you thought he was a nutty professor or not, uh, Selig loved the game. Uh, but, you know, when it comes to Manfred, if you love the game, you try to do all you can not to just promote it, but to save it for the future. 
You know, it's, it's not about 2020. It's about the future of the game. And, again, players and owners can't come together as they all fight for uh, dollars. Even the dog doesn't like it. The dog hates yeah. it, too. <laughs> he's, he's mad. He wants to chase a ball, but they're not throwing him. I get it. It's not my dog, by the way. <laughs> I just thought, like, wait a minute. When did the hood cave add a dog? <laughs> That's not my dog. It's, that is the sounds of the urban jungle on the, the South Shore. So, so tell that story real quick. So we saw, it's kind of funny. We started talking about George Floyd. And um, I'm just speaking from my heart on, like, the whole thing with George Floyd. And you said someone tweeted at our show. Uh, last Monday, when he, when we were working together, that people could hear like sirens and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. You had you opened the show talking by yourself for a good like fifteen to eighteen minutes, and it was so well put, and it was just really well done. And then behind you, there's soft sirens going around your neighborhood <laughs> that like fit the ambiance of what you were saying, and everything perfect. It was poetic in a sense. It was really fun. <laughs> Some people thought it was like sound effects. Like, nope, <laughs> no, that's just the South Side. <laughs> yep, twenty four hours a day. <laughs> The sounds of sirens and what something that sounds like gunshots or it might be fireworks because the fireworks are open for business in Hammond and Whiting now, so you can cross the board and get your fireworks if you want. So yeah, that's that's what the South Side sounds like. I was uh, I wasn't doing a bit. It was just windows are open because it's stuffy in this in this studio and well, that's it was we theater of the mind at its best. <laughs> it was. <laughs> so let's find out more uh, about college sports. Will there be a separation between the Power Five and the NCAA? We find out uh, coming up next right here on UTH. This is Chicago's home for sports. Stream ESPN 1000 easily on the all-new ESPN Chicago app. You're listening to Under the Hood on ESPN 1000. Full show tomorrow between 7 and 10 right here on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app. Jeff Dickerson and I got a chance to talk to Rod Gilmore, a college football analyst for ESPN for a long, long time. Uh, We talked to uh, Gilmore about a number of issues, including the uh, death of George Floyd and also some college football as well. Um, so let's go back in time. Just this past Saturday on Dickerson and Hood, you can hear it every Saturday right here on ESPN 1000 and also on the ESPN Chicago app. Our conversation with ESPN college football analyst Rod Gilmore. We've talked a lot, Jonathan, about how the NBA is going to be back beginning July 31st. Major League Baseball still very far apart between the owners and the players. There's certainly been some movement with college sports, as a lot of college football programs begin voluntary workouts, it's always great to catch up with Rod Gilmore, our veteran ESPN college football analyst joining us here on ESPN Radio. Rod, first of all, how are you and your family doing, my friend? We're doing well. Thanks for asking. You know, we've been cooped up. Uh, I think California had the the longest shelter in home or stay in home order in the country. So. Uh, we still had a lot of things uh, shut down, but uh, fortunately, no one here has picked up the coronavirus, and we're doing fine, and appreciate your asking. How about you guys? We're doing well, Rod. Um, you know, we know what's going on in our world, and I want to, re- we want to reach out to you and ask the question about how different is this movement for George Floyd versus others? We see that there's protest not only in the United States, but across the country. 
Usually some of these protests are regional or happens in the city in which an, uh, an occurrence takes place. But how different does this feel for you? Well, it's a great question. And, you know, I've talked about that with family members and friends a lot over the last few days. And it, it does feel different. Um, I mean, if you think back to uh, the riots of the 60s and 70s for police brutality and denial of, uh, of freedoms, um, and then fast forward to 1992, I believe it was, the Rodney King uh, beating, and uh, after that there were protests and riots. But all those things were, were different because I don't think the message and concern became widespread and universal. The message was pretty limited to the black community. This time I'm, I'm seeing and hearing much more diversity. And quite honestly, uh, you know, for me, for me personally, I'm hearing from uh, my white friends more so than ever before. Not, you know, I mean, clearly way more than after the 92 Rodney King uh, 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 beating. So I, I think that's the difference. And the, if you look at the protests, you'll see many more uh, uh, diverse uh, uh, people there of all races and walks there, more younger people involved. So this, is, this feels different. It feels also different from, you know, the sports world. We, we didn't have uh, 20 years ago or you know, 30 years ago, whatever, that many um, athletes speaking up about this, about this issue, being concerned about police brutality, being concerned about systemic racism. But it's across the board now when you see NFL players step up in times when they never would before and wouldn't step up for Colin Kaepernick, and you see it out of the NBA. And we're seeing college players recognize their power uh, and stepping up and asking for change and demanding some change. You know, if you think about what's happened in some of the places um, we've seen lately, um, such as Florida State uh, and even in Missouri, where they had their own protest and the coaching staff participated, but uh, Missouri led that. Their players led their protests uh, and registered people to vote in Florida State. You saw what happened there. Uh, it just took one player to rally the other guys about what they perceived to be a slight by the coach, and a potential boycott was on the horizon. We haven't seen that in college athletics, but there will be a day, and it may be coming soon, where players will band together and will, will boycott. But this, this feels dramatically different than the protests that we've had before in the past. Talk with Rod Gilmore, our great ESPN college football analyst. I don't mean to be blunt, Rod, but you, know, you mentioned, I mean, there have been a lot of diverse voices championing this cause, finally. I almost feel like if it doesn't change after this, I mean, it's never going to change. You know, I mean, finally you got everyone's attention. Now it's time to, to put these words into action. Well, I, I think that's right. I mean, if you think about, you know, history, the whole issue of, you know, the great scholars uh, would write about can America really succeed with this kind of a experiment with race and equality? And you'd have to say up until now, no, it, it hasn't succeeded with that experiment. Um, and if it doesn't, doesn't get it done coming out of this, I'm not sure it will. I mean, I'm optimistic this time because we have more diversity concerned about this. There was a time uh, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, that if you complained uh, to your friends about, hey, this has been my experience, uh, I was stopped by the police, I was thrown up against the wall, I was, you know, all, all these things. Uh, the usual reaction was, eh, well, what did you do? You know, not, um, not I, that I believe you, uh, 
uh, I've seen this. Yeah, it happens to other people. And, and the black experience, the black male experience in particular, um, has been different. But seeing that people see these videos uh, and are, are made sick by it, they're horrified by it. Uh, we're talking about instances, you know, the George Floyd video obviously was the most extreme we've seen with, with someone losing their life. Um, but we've seen on video minor incidents where the police are called in uh, and they escalate into someone being hurt or are killed or almost killed. So um, if it doesn't happen, things don't change out of this one. I, I, I don't know that this great American experiment of race and equality is ever going to get solved. Rod, uh, you've been in locker rooms in which there's so many different uh, players from across the country uh, that are there in the locker room, and you, you're you there mm-hmm. for one common cause. You're trying to win. Uh, and right. you, but, you, but you also learn uh, backgrounds from other people. Now, the Drew Brees story is big because Drew Brees, and also, as well as uh, Vic Fangio, the head coach for Denver, has have made their comments. What do you think locker rooms will be like now in 2020 versus the ones that you were in as far as trying to learn from one another? Well, that's that's a great question, and I I don't know. We're in uncharted territory here. Um, you know, we there was a time when you would not have a uh, a team publicly divide itself like uh, happened with the New Orleans Saints when their leader Drew Brees was called out for his insensitive comment. Um, that wouldn't have happened twenty years ago or, or two years ago. Um, you think about Clemson and Trevor Lawrence speaking up to stand with uh, his black teammates over uh, the Smith treatment and the like. Uh, these locker rooms have the potential to be better than ever, more understanding, but there could be somewhat of a powder keg for those who are keeping their thoughts to themselves and they finally explode later or be upset later. Um, but if you have more discussion, uh, it should help, I would think. If you think about what's going on at, at Missouri, um, they made a decision that as a team they would they would talk about these things, and then once they decided what they were going to do, they would all get in it together. So hopefully that's the way it turns out, but we're in unchattered territories where players are realizing that this is an issue that can be discussed and should be discussed uh, by teams. And it used to be that coaches would say, hey, it's just about winning, let's leave everything else outside – I, I think that day is gone. I, I think that day is, is long gone. I think you have too many people in locker rooms who care about this issue, uh, white and black, and I think it's going to be something that will be addressed. So hopefully locker rooms will be, be even better, but I, I don't know. Rod Gilmore's with us. I'm sure you've noticed what's happening at Iowa, Rod, with a lot of players speaking out in the last couple of days about the coaching staff, the strength and conditioning coach, um, do you think that, that even the college players will feel more empowered going forward to raise the alarm if they see something that they don't feel is right? Well, I think we saw that based on what happened in Florida State. Now, the, the difference with Iowa is that you have former players who are in the NFL who are speaking up about their experience at Iowa. So it's a lot easier when you've moved through the program and you're gone to look back and and to raise these complaints when you are a player on the team and that head coach kind of controls your life, you're less likely to raise those things unless, you know, you, you bind together with a bunch of other teammates and you raise it. And and Missouri's done that before. 
So I, I, I think, I think we're, we're having a new day. I think players are finding their power. Um, I think the Iowa situation should be a real, real signal to not just Iowa, but other programs that you really need to look hard at what you're doing and how you're treating their players. And let's not, let's not pass over, you know, the, the other big elephant, elephant in the room. It's not just, you know, Hey, this is how guys are treated. It is this explosion of money uh, into college athletics generated by football and basketball and generated predominantly by black and brown players uh, from the power five schools and in, in basketball. They generate most of that money that comes in. And most of the money that comes in uh, doesn't find its way back to people of color or to black communities. So I think you're seeing this issue where uh, players want their share. You know, name, image, and likeness lawsuit is not quite over, but it, it should be over soon. But uh, that may give players some some more rights and some more money. Uh, I think it's just gotten to the point where these things come up. Uh, they they are clearly clearly on the minds of players. Racism and the inequitable division of the money generated in college football. Rod. Um... We're starting to see some of the states in the South open up throughout this COVID-19 where there's going to be some cities that are opening up and there's some um, athletic directors are looking forward to our college football. I'm a huge college football fan. I'm looking forward to it as well as long as the players are healthy uh, and it's safe. Do you foresee, by the way, a, a separation of Power 5 in the NCAA in the near future? Because Power 5 has their own ideas. The NCAA has their own ideas. Were you surprised by the opening up in the South? No, I, I was not. <laughs> no, I, I think all of us from the start would say that for college football, if it comes back, it's going to come back first in the South and in Texas. And that's just because of the way they view and how much they care about football. That, that, was, that would be what I would think. Um, what's going to happen in the future? Would you have Power 5 teams moving away from the NCAA? I think there is a distinct possibility that the power five teams would would remove themselves and relieve themselves of the burden of the NCAA. Um, there are things that they probably like about the NCAA. I mean, some of the administrative ideas and the like, but the problem is that the NCAA is imposing rules on the power five and they're playing an entirely different game than the, the lower divisions. And so when you have rules uh, that apply to, you know, Texas A&M and to Alabama who generate, you know, $200 million a year in revenue, uh, and you, you, you apply the same rules for Division II schools or for Division I school that, you know, has a budget of just a couple million bucks, that, that doesn't work for the Power Five folks. Uh, and we saw that when they first went to the cost of attendance um, increase for players that a lot of schools were against it. Uh, the power five wanted it. Uh, you're going to see the same thing with name, image, and likeness. It will probably, um, get pushed more and more and broader by the power five. And they may not want to be governed by the NCAA when it comes to those kinds of rules. So I think the NCAA has a role to play with the lower divisions and with putting on some championships, but they already have nothing to do with the college football playoffs. Uh, they have nothing to do with scheduling. So it's really just their oversight of rules that really apply. And I think that you're going to see at some point 
um, the Power Five move away. They were not too happy about the way the NCAA canceled March Madness without uh, consulting with them as well. I mean, do you expect them to stay with them long term? I would say based on the landscape right now, I'd say no. Yeah. I'd say no. Yeah. I think that's a fair take. Rod, we we truly appreciate your wisdom and your insight. Hey, thanks for having me on. And, uh, you know, be safe on, on all fronts going forward. This is Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. It's Under the Hood. Follow us on the gram at IGJHood and at ESPN underscore Chicago. This is Chicago's home for sports, ESPN 1000. All right, Eric, tomorrow another full show between 7 and 10 right here on ESPN 1000, the ESPN Chicago app. The dandy little glove man, Mickey Morandini, will be on the show. He'll be on tomorrow because Sosa versus McGuire, the 30 for 30, is going to be this upcoming Sunday. Morandini was on that 98 Cubs team as a starting second baseman, so we'll hear from Morandini, get his thoughts on Sosa. That'll be interesting. Also, Jesse Rogers will stop by and talk to us about what's not going on with Major League Baseball. Andre Snellings wrote a terrific column on ESPN.com regarding Roger Goodell. Also, we will uh, have our a great opportunity for us to redraft. I believe we're going to redraft the year 2000, the NBA, Sean and I. And also uh, Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday, uh, every Tuesday at 930, right here on ESPN 1000. We thank you for listening and being part of the program here on ESPN 1000. Our thanks to Nick Friedel uh, for being with us, as well as Ray Flores. Eric Ostrowski on the other side of the glass. Let's do it tomorrow between 7 and 10 right here on Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Good night. This is Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports.